0: I forgot to introduce myself earlier. If you are a guest here, my name is PJ. I'm one of the pastors and members here at Bethany Baptist Church, and it is a joy this morning to bring God's word to you this Lord's Day. So because man must not live on bread alone, but but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be all over the scriptures today, but we'll start in Luke chapter 9, verses 21 to 26. 26. Luke nine twenty one to 26. You know what? It might be helpful today if I use a pew Bible, since I'm going around everywhere, just so you could follow along and I could keep saying the page numbers as I go to different places. So Luke 9, 21 to 26. If you don't have a Bible, you can look at the pew Bible in the chair in front of you. Even if you have your own Bible, because I'm going to be going everywhere. If you don't know, I'm almost... Uh, okay, I'm going to do this. How many of you mem- How many of you know all 66 books of the Bible in order? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you do. Raise it high. Come on. Oh, wow. That's, like, really sad. <laughs> uh, with our phones today. Okay, I don't know if any of you have the... Let's grow in humility. Here's an exercise in humility. How many of you, when you use your phones for your Bible app, you put the... But You put the books in alphabetical order. Raise your hand. All right. Man. Yeah. Okay. So if you don't know the books of the Bible, um, you might want to use a pew Bible today because I'm going to be going everywhere and I'll tell you the page numbers. Okay. I want to encourage you to memorize the books of the Bible. It is good for you um, in just knowing your way around this book, Library of 66 Books. But let's go to Luke 9, 21 to 26. It's on page 919 in the pew bible page 919 if this is your first time looking at the bible the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers so i'll help you follow along all right hear jesus's words in luke 9 21 through 26 but jesus strictly warned and instructed his disciples to tell this to no one that he's the messiah saying it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray that your words would dwell richly among us. We pray that we would happily and gladly see the value of Jesus that we're willing to follow him deny ourselves take up our crosses every day die to ourselves and follow him lord we need your help for this so we pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimony and not to material gain open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and to see the goodness of Christ the goodness of your the goodness of who you are for us in Jesus as we look at these passages. Help us to see your goodness in the call to justice and in the Calvary road you're calling us to follow Jesus on. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days and be free because of this gladness to serve others in humility and sacrifice with our time, our talents, and our treasures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus called people to follow him, as we read in this text, and to die for him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, die to yourself, and follow me. In Luke 22, we have uh, Jesus... Telling, the, telling Peter that he's going to deny him three times. And Peter says to him, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison for you and death. You told me if anyone would come after you, deny himself, die, or, you know, deny himself, die daily, or take up his cross daily and follow you. I've done that. I'm willing to go to, to, to jail for you. I'm willing to go and die for you. And yet, even though he promised that, Peter promised that to Jesus, he ended up denying Jesus three times. Now Peter was forgiven of his sin, he was restored, and eventually he did pour out his life for King Jesus and for his commission, to go and disciple all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus commanded. And that really is a picture of our lives. We as Christians have been unfaithful at times, we sin against God. Even as Christians, after we convert to Christ and follow Jesus, and then what does Jesus do? He forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us of our sins. He restores us, and he leads us and helps us to live for him and to pour out our lives for him and to die for him. That's what God does to those who follow his son, Jesus. So we want to trust Jesus. We want to keep following Jesus. We want to obey the Great Commission to disciple our all nations and the neighbors. And so we're talking about justice. Last Sunday, justice in regard to fighting racism and ethnocentric oppression, and this week, justice regarding the unborn, the preborn. Some might say, PJ, if you talk about these types of things, you you take your church away from the mission, because the mission is the Great Commission, to disciple people. So tell them about Jesus, preach the gospel, lead them to conversion, baptize them, have them join your church, but don't get involved in public issues or politics, as some might say. And believe me, I, I want to steer as clear as I can, and I try in my own life, not just as a preacher, but even in my own life, to stay away from the allure of partisan politics. But we're not talk, talking about partisanship last week or this week, we're talking about obeying Jesus. We're talking about righteousness. We're talking about loving our neighbors. The Great Commission is not convert people. Go, therefore, and disciple all nations, and then what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then what? Teach them to what? To obey all that Christ commanded. Not just the church, not just Sundays. Not just obey some things, not just obey the things that are convenient for you, not just the religious-looking things, and that changes from culture to culture and generation to generation. Obey everything Christ commanded, all of the Bible, all of it, right? That is the mission. Now, if you don't keep the gospel and conversion and spiritual growth as the tip of the spear, you can lose your way. That is the tip of the spear of the mission. But the tip of the spear is not the whole spear, okay? We got got to do all that Christ has commanded, so we, we take time for this and so let me read to you some passages here here's a key passage you could turn here if you're fast enough but that's okay if you're not Isaiah 1 I'm gonna read a lot of passages so you might just want to read but page 6 600 in the pew bible Isaiah 1:17 says this learn to do what is good there's a command learn to do what is good so we're gonna spend an hour here learning what is good in regard to the unborn learn to do what is good pursue justice correct the oppressor Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Isaiah one seventeen. These are not options, these are commands. Isaiah six eight, which I misquoted earlier in my prayer. I'm not Isaiah six eight, Micah six eight. Uh, Micah six eight says, this is on page eight twenty seven. Mankind he has told each of you what is good and what It is that the Lord requires of you. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Did you hear that? To act justly? To walk humbly, but to act justly. Understand what justice is, and then act justly in righteousness. Psalm 82, 3 and 4 is what, what our brother Sammy read for us this morning in our scripture reading. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4 on page 517 says this. Provide justice for the needy. There's the command. Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. They're under the power of the wicked. They're being oppressed by others. Pressed down, whether intentionally or unintentionally whether personally or systemically. There is a pressure. There are systems of relationships. If you just take three people interacting regularly, you have a system. I have five children living in our home, plus me and my wife, and there's a system of how we do things. There's a pattern, and that brings some blessing, and some of our patterns bring some burden on some of our kids and on on the family in some ways. Anytime you get more than two parties in, you get a system, you get a cultural pattern, and when you have a whole nation of it, you get all kinds of patterns. And some patterns are unrighteously, unjustly oppressive, and sinful, and non-personal. They're just systemically rolling on. Unintentional even. But they roll on and press down. And as Christians, we need to learn to do what is good, we need to act justly. We need to provide justice for the needy, which means we need to know the needs. When does uphold the rights of the oppressed, we need to know who's oppressed and destitute. Martin Luther King Jr. said, this is not a direct quote. I tried to look it up. I couldn't find it. Fabidi, on your wheel, quotes this from Martin Luther King Jr. at the um, the bus boycott when he was defining justice. He said, justice is removing, this is a paraphrase, now is removing the things that get in the way of love so this is about love loving others what is justice justice is removing the impediments to love the people or systems or situations or setups that actually get in the way of love so we want to pursue justice one in you know we talk about the nine marks of a healthy church or the 11 marks of a healthy church and I wonder how many of you can name the nine marks of a healthy church. One of them that's not in the nine marks but is a mark of a healthy church biblically is justice. Does the church does the church's cooperation with each other and their collaboration produce justice and mercy and love in the community? That's a scary question to ask about our church here in Bellflower. Has our life together as 147 members of this church has our love for our neighbors led Has our collaboration produced justice and mercy and love in the community in some ways? I think we have in some ways, but we should not get content. There's a lot to do. Another question you could ask our church is, does our church, do churches love their neighbors tangibly in word and deed? Do you know your neighbor's names? It's a good church health diagnostic. Now, We talk about systemic racism or ethnocentric oppression last week because it was Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. This week we talk about the unborn because it is the Sanctity of Life Sunday or Roe v. Wade. This would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. By God's grace, it didn't reach 50 years. It was overturned last year in June but we talk about these justice issues because they are issues that need to be talked about in the culture. And it's so good by God's providence that they're back to back in the two weeks of January because it keeps us from being partisan, right? Because typically one party likes to talk about one and the other party likes to talk about the other, but we don't care about partisan politics. We care about justice biblically. So let me tell you about the situation in America today when we talk about the unborn. Right now, it is illegal in 14, uh, abortions are illegal. Most abortions are illegal in 14 U.S. states. Earlier this month, in January, Idaho um, Idaho and South Carolina both had rulings or uh, issued rulings on pending cases concerning abortion. In Idaho, abortion is now allowed only to save the life of the mother or in cases of rape and incest. In South Carolina, sadly, the state Supreme Court ruled that the 20, 2021 heartbeat bill is unconstitutional, granting right to abortion for up to 22 weeks. Abortion is currently banned in 13 states. In Georgia, where the complete ban was blocked by the courts, it is allowed only in the first six weeks of pregnancy. Eleven more states have restrictions between 15 to 22 weeks of gestation, and abortion is legal beyond 22 weeks gestation in 25 states and in Washington, D.C. More than half of all abortions now are done at home with the pill. As a result of abortion pills, day after pills, abortion pills. Even in the states right now where it's illegal to have abortions, they can get it is legal to order and to get shipped to you pills from other states and prescribed from other states. The Born Alive Survivors Protection Act. Have you guys heard of that? The Born Alive Survivors Protection Act. It's this act that's supposed to protect babies that when they come out, so they're, they're trying to abort the baby. The baby comes out of the womb. If the baby comes out of the womb, um, the, the, the Born Alive Survivors protect Protection Act would say that you have to give medical care to the baby once the baby's out. That just barely passed the House. It's going to go to the Senate, which it will most likely die in the Senate which means it's going to continue to be legal. If you tried to do an abortion and you failed, once the baby's out, you, you, have, you, you don't have to give it any medical care, you just let it die. Just let the baby cry and die. And that's part of the pro-abortion culture. Well, you, you tried to abort the baby, didn't make it, so, so you could just let them die how do we as christians follow jesus in a culture like this we don't choose our generation we don't choose the cultures we're born and raised in god does at least in our upbringing but here you are you didn't choose to live in this day and age but you do so how do you follow jesus in this day and age i think our church's problem is that we lack clarity and we lack urgency some christians lack ur- urgent, like clarity is, is abortion sinful And even if abortion is sinful, does that mean it has to be illegal? I mean, do we really know when life begins? Are we scientists, experts on science? Do we really know when life begins? I mean, some professing Christians are divided on this. What about the health of the mother? Shouldn't we care for the health of the mother and her well-being? Answer, should we? Yes or no? Yes, Yes, we should. Of course we should. But some take that to make Abortion acceptable? Isn't this just a political and partisan issue? I hope to show you it's not. So we lack clarity. We also lack urgency. And this is where I feel convicted and guilty. Will we wish we've done more? I mean, do you ever look at U.S. history and you look back at the horrific history of slavery and you think, "Man, what were they? What were they doing? What, what were those? What were the people doing every day?" Those who are opposing uh, uh, slavery—I mean, it, it becomes—it's so normal to the culture that you can, you get tired of opposing slavery, right? You got to go on with your life. You got to you got to put food on the table. You got to take care of your kids. You got to clean the house. You have to make sure kids are educated, go to school. You got to get to work. You got to get your paycheck. Go home, manage your finances. For the vast majority, even of those who are anti-slavery, you just get beat down by the busyness of life that you you wonder. Should you have done more? I think about the generations in the future who look at, if, God, if Christ does not come, and they look back in this generation, these generations of pro-abortion America, and they go through PJ's sermons or his blog posts or his disciples, just whatever they could find, like, what did, why did he talk about this so little so if they looked at my schedule and you know i mean i have google calendar how many i mean if you guys are on google calendar you could start rec- people could maybe invade your privacy at some point in the future and look at your calendar and like what what where's where's the urgency babies are dying 900,000 over 900,000 babies aborted in 2020 that's the last stat i know i don't know 2021 or 2022 over 900,000 babies aborted what what was, what, was, what were we doing in 2020 I think we'll wish we've done more. We lack a certain sense of urgency. And I don't want to bog us down as if that means it's your job 24-7, but the question is, are we being faithful to what God is calling us to do personally with opportunities he's giving you? Or even just look at your prayer life. One of my applications at the end is pray. How often have you prayed against these types of things? Now, to your credit, BBC family, when I pray and lead us in the prayer of petition, once every four weeks we pray against abortion. So if you've been attending this gathering last year for 52 Sundays, at least one quarter of your Sundays, we have gathered together and we have prayed specifically as a church against abortion. That's something, but we want that to shape our lives regularly. There's one pastor in St. Louis, the New York Times did an opinion piece from him, and he said that he was pro-life, but he also thinks women should have the right to choose an abortion because it's their choice, not his and not ours, not our choice. So he said he's pro-life, but women should have the right to choose. And I want to say, choose to do what? Finish the sentence. Women women have the right to choose what? We don't think they have a right to choose to steal. Right? We don't think they have a right to to choose to, um, to kill, to kill their grown children or their neighbors that they disagree with. So we say right to choose. What do we mean? We mean very specifically a right to choose to abort the baby or they might say fetus in the womb, in the womb, that they have the right to choose that. So this pastor is saying I'm pro-life, but I think a woman has a right to choose. What I want to say is that is not pro-life. Okay. Get this because I think some of our church family might be here as well. And if you're not, you have other Christian friends who are personally pro-life publicly pro-choice is pro-choice. Because the debate is not what you would personally prefer. That's not the debate. That's not what we talk about. When you say pro-life, pro-choice, we're not talking about personal preference. We're talking about public policy. Should it be legal or illegal to abort fetuses, pre-born babies? Should it be legal or illegal? If you think that women have the right to choose, then you are by definition pro-choice. Does that make sense? It's not personal preference. So if someone says, I'm pro-life, but publicly I'm pro-choice, you're pro-choice in that we're not talking about personal preferences. Okay? The debate is not there. The debate is on the public. We're talking about justice here for society. So what we're saying, if you're pro-life, what we're saying as pro-life people is it is unjust. It is an injustice for abortions to be legal in our land. That is unrighteous and It is unjust. That's what we're saying. All right. So God gives us his word and wisdom to, to walk with clarity, hopefully, and to feel a certain urgency in loving our neighbors. So what we want to talk about is love here. My application, my main point here is love. I want to talk about love in a few senses. So here's an outline if you want an outline. Love God. Love your preborn neighbor. Love the pregnant mothers in distress. Love the guilty mothers and fathers who have had abortions or who have allowed and facilitated or encouraged or provided for abortions. Love fellow church members and love our American neighbors as a society. Okay, so there's a few here. Love God, one. Love your preborn neighbor 2 love pregnant mothers 3 love guilty mothers and fathers 4 love your church family church members 5 and 6 love your american neighbors let's look at these one at a time number 1 love god mark 12:30 30 and 31 jesus they asked jesus what is the greatest commandment and jesus says what is the greatest commandment you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. So in all of this, the greatest commandment we must not lose. It's all about loving God, loving Jesus, loving the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Treasuring Christ is the goal. In our own communion with God and in whatever we talk about, whether it be abortion or racism or or church membership or evangelism or parenting, whatever it is, the main goal in everything you do is love God. And the second command is love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now, Jesus says, if you love me, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love compels you to obey God's commands, okay? In 1 John 5, I think it says that love is keeping God's commands, okay? So if you love Christ keep his commands. One of his commands, the second greatest command, is love your neighbor as yourself. And so, remember, last week we talked about the Good Samaritan and his story. Um, remember what prompted that? A man was challenging Jesus, and he said, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And he said the two commands, and Jesus said, "Yeah, do those, and you're going to live." And the man said, "Who is my neighbor?" That's what we want to think about. Who is my ne- if you're going to love God, you need to love your neighbors. The question is, who is your neighbor? You need to love with discernment. Philippians one nine, right? That your love would abound more and more with every kind of knowledge and discernment. You need to discern who your neighbor is. You need to discern what's loving for your neighbor and then love them. So let's go to point two. So love God is first and foremost. Love God through Jesus Christ. Secondly, though, love your preborn neighbor. Is your is the preborn blob of tissue as some might say in that womb is that a neighbor that must be loved yes or no that's the question another way of saying that is is that a human life is that a human person at what point does human life begin the bible does not answer that with exact scientific precision but the bible gives us pointers so let me give you some of those pointers Genesis 25-22, I'm just going to read a bunch of passages here for the sake of time. You could write these references and look at them later or re-listen to the message. Genesis 25 22. this is Rebecca with twins in her womb. It says this in 25-22, in but the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of Yahweh. So notice the Bible says, Moses says, and the Holy Spirit says that the, the, the two babies, fetuses, Blobs of tissue inside her are called children. They're called infants. They're called children in Genesis 25-22, even though they're not born yet. Hosea 12-3, it speaks of them. Notice the the pronouns here of he, not it. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. Talking about Jacob and and Esau again. He, Jacob, grasped his brother's heel, and as an adult, he wrestled with God. So even when he's grasping his brother's heel in the womb, he's a he. He's a person. So the authors consider the Bible authors consider them preborn people to be people. God is involved in creating and developing the unborn. Here's the second thing: God is creating and developing. God is involved in creating and developing the unborn. Job thirty-one fifteen says this: Did not the one who made me in the womb also make them? Did not the same God form us both in the womb? God forms us in the womb. You hear that? He makes us in the womb. Listen to Job 10, 8 through 12. Your hands shaped me and formed me. Will you now destroy, will you now turn and destroy me? Please remember that you will, you form me like clay. Will you now return me to dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and wove me together with bones and tendons. You gave me life and faithful love and you care and your care has guarded my life. Job understands that God was involved in creating and developing him in the womb. Psalm 139 may be the most famous passage, Psalm 139, 13 through 16. David is praying here, and he prays this to God, for it was you who created my, my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God forms children in the womb, and they are persons, or at least the Bible considers them persons. It's hard for me to not talk about this this year, in light of rise, Emmanuel Tobian, my son, some of you saw him at 13 weeks, his toes, his fingers, his ears, you could see him, you could see that he's a boy, God forming children, persons, humans in the womb. Now, the unborn are persons who can be considered sinners, and they can also be appointed by God while they're still in the the womb. Listen to David in Psalm 51.5. He says this, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Psalm 51.5. David says, I was sinful when my mother, not when I was born, but when my mother what? Conceived me at conception. At conception, I was sinful. How can you be sinful before God unless you are accountable to God? How can you have a status of sinful before God as a non-person? I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Jeremiah 1.5. So not only sinful when at conception, Jeremiah 1.5, God says, I chose you, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So predestination before he was even formed, before conception. But then he even says... I set you apart before you were born. Okay, so so even there, there could be an appointment and a, a care for God in the womb. And we know that not just if Jeremiah is unclear, Jeremiah 1.5, you have John the Baptist, right? We have the story of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, where, where Mary visits Elizabeth, and when, when Mary visits Elizabeth, Mary is pregnant maybe less than a week. I mean, Randy Alcorn says less than 10 days probably as soon as she gets the word from the angel she it says in luke 1:39 that she hurries to see elizabeth elizabeth is older she's at least six or seven months pregnant by this time when mary comes in luke chapter one and she sees uh, elizabeth her cousin her older cousin and she greets her cousin elizabeth what happens to the baby in elizabeth's womb john the baptist he leaps in the womb he leaps in the womb, and, and, and he's set apart from the womb. It even says that he's filled by the Spirit. He's given the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist in the womb. Some, some debate when life is, and again, the Bible's not an exact scientific book, but if Randy Alcorn's right, that Mary, it says in Luke 139, let me just read Luke 139, it says, in those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah to visit her her cousin, Luke 139. If she hears a message from the angel that she's going to conceive by the Holy Spirit, as soon as she hears that, she hurries to go visit her cousin in Judah. It could have been within 10 days that she visited. I say that to say this. Randy Alcorn says, it takes six to 12 days, six days for implantation to happen from conception and fertilization and in 12 days when it's completed. So it's very possible that that even without, even without Mary having the implantation process completed in 12 days, she visits Elizabeth, and and John leaps at the at the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Some people might debate when when does life happen, and we'll address that in a little bit more. Like, is it at implantation, or is it at conception and fertilization? Let's let's hear at least um, a few people on this. This is this is the debated point, right? The question here's from the world and everything in it, a, a podcast, news podcast. Uh, they did a segment on on abortion. And they said, "When quote the question of when life begins is one of the most common points of contention in the abortion debate." So one interview, he said. So they asked, "When does life begin?" One said, "Once they can live outside the womb, probably." Another one said, "What I consider, what I would consider, it is irrelevant." And I don't think the government should be in the business of it either. So I don't know when life begins. Neither do they. The government shouldn't even think about that. Another interviewer said, I think it's just too gray. There's too many gray matters you can pinpoint. You can't pinpoint one thing because it's such a personal topic for each woman. Is it, though? I mean, it is personal, certainly, but is it only personal? We've been doing, um, we've been doing uh, mandated reporter training for our volunteers for our children's ministry, and so volunteer, uh, let's test you. Okay, if you've been, how many of you have done the, volunteer, the mandated volunteer uh, report, mandated reporter training? Okay, I'm going to test you right now. Okay, so yes or no? If a parent is abusing their child physically, at home, and you find out and you know it's truly happening, is it a personal thing between them two that should stay between them and the family? Yes or no? No. no. That's obvious. No. But it is personal. I mean, it is a father or a mother with a child. There's person, persons acting, and you're not there. It was just between them in a room. But it's more than personal. It's a public issue. It's a justice issue. It's beyond them, even though it is personal to them. So just the fact that it's personal doesn't make it not public, doesn't make it not a justice issue. So Dr. Tara Sander Lee, who has a PhD in biochemistry from Harvard Medical School, okay, to give some credentials that we don't have, she says um, the sperm and egg. So so well, the Webster Dictionary, not that it's authoritative, characterizes. Uh, Life, defines life as a state characterized by the capacity for metabolism, growth, and reaction stimuli. So here's Tara Lee. She says, the sperm and egg each have half the number of chromosomes needed to be a human organism when they fuse. That, res- that, um, that restores the complete number needed to create a human being, an organism, a living human being. Okay? So half the number, half the number of chromosomes together making a human organism. So what about Growth if one of the aspects of life is growth does does the fertilized egg does the yeah does the fertilized egg grow yes or no yes 18 days after fertilization sander lee says the embryo's heart start has appeared by the third week we already see that three primary sections of the brain are identifiable that's like the forebrain the midbrain and the hindbrain and we see that their circulation is already developing that by 3 weeks the early blood cell precursors are appearing What about responding to stimuli? Lee says this, you can see, you can even see visually, if a baby receives an anesthetic injection during fetal surgery, you can actually, you can actually, there's a video from a publication that shows you can actually see the baby's face all calm before the fetal injection. And the minute the baby receives the the injection, their face starts grimacing. So can they respond to stimuli? Yes. And then that brings us to metabolism. Sander Lee continues. If you look at the word metabolism, it actually means that you know it's defined as the chemical processes processes that occur within a living organism in order to maintain life. Those structures are in place, those cells are in place to give rise to the tissues very early on that are going to then further give rise to those organs that are going to develop with digestion. Of course, life is more than these things. But it's clear that an embryo in the womb has all these three markers. Growth, response to stimuli, metabolism. So abortions don't just terminate a pregnancy, it terminates a life. Filmmaker Tracy Robinson spent most of her life supporting a woman's choice to have an abortion. But a series of pro-life presentations and fetal images shifted her perspective. She said this, quote, Not only does life begin at the moment of conception, when the sperm meets the egg... Uh, when the sperm eats egg, but the fact that our DNA begins at that moment, every unique characteristic and trait, every unique thing about us was formed in that moment, and it just sends chills up your spine. The fact that, we were, that, that we're smaller, we're the size smaller than a dot, but everything was programmed into that little thing. Amazing. So if you're saying, PJ, I don't know that life begins at conception, and personhood begins at conception. I want to say a few things here about, so when, when does life begin? So if you are comfortable with an abortion or you think it should be legal, my question is why? Um, I think we all agree. Let's just kind of take it from the furthest development back, okay, to, to conception. Are you okay with a, a mother terminating the life of their baby that's one month old? Yes or no? no right I and mean, that would just I, I think nobody no one is okay with that to do that would be unjust okay now let's go to the the born the, the survivor right the born survivor so a baby that's born out of the womb the botched abortion that fails and the baby lives is it okay to let leave the baby there and let the baby die that would be a second one to ask so that's, so that's one step in well okay from that what about partial birth abortion do you guys know what partial birth abortion is Partial birth abortion is when the baby's head comes out and before the full body comes out, they take scissors and stick it into the back of the neck of the baby and start cutting the spinal cord and killing the baby from that point. So the baby's not all the way out of the womb. That's partial birth abortion. Are you okay with that? Should that be legal? Because the baby's not all the way out. Okay, well, if you're not okay with that, what about the third trimester when the baby could survive out of the womb? And then you could go to the second trimester. And then you could go to the first trimester. And then you could go to, what about pre-implantation? So at what point should it be legal for this fertilized egg to not be allowed to grow? At what point should it be okay and acceptable legally for that to happen? That's the question maybe the day after pill, 24 hours, you have to answer that question. Even if you don't agree with me or with the pro-life stance on this, you still have to answer the question when you think it should be illegal. Because obviously all of us agree you shouldn't kill a one-month-old baby. That's illegal, rightfully so. Praise God for that just rule, that just law. But, but before that, that's where you, got, you have to answer the question even if you're pro-choice. So one author has given us this acronym called SLED, S-L-E-D. It stands for size. So when you think about it, you can think about SLED when you're, when, you're, when you're discussing abortion with others. Size. Does how big you are determine who you are? Does, it, does how big you are determine your humanity, yes or no? No, we've got little ones in the education building. We've got some little ones here. Just because they're smaller doesn't make them less human, Right. Size does not, does not um, determine your humanity. Secondly, what about level of development? Because they'll be like, oh, well, it's underdeveloped. It's only, uh, the, the, the child is only a month old in the, in the womb. Uh, gest, gestation's only been a month. Does level de- of development determine your humanity? Are 20-year-olds more human than 10-year-olds? No, but they are, are since they're typically, I say typically, smarter and stronger, right? They're typically smarter and stronger does that make them more human no so level of development does not make you more human third what about environment does being inside a house make you more or less of a person than being outside of a house yes or no no it does not make you more of a person sorry i said yes or no it's more or less that's not a good yes or no does being located in the mother's body rather than outside the mother's body make you make the child less human answer is no so environment lastly degree of dependency well the, the the baby is dependent on the mom and the mom has a right to, to i mean you no one has the right to just force someone i'd love to get more into that that's why we need to do a QA next week okay can't get into everything now that's one of my struggles when i was preparing i was like i don't know how much to get into here but degree of dependency does dependence upon another determine who you are does that determine your humanity Is someone with Alzheimer's or on kidney dialysis less of a human, less of a person? No. Just because you might be dependent for your life on something outside of yourself does not make you less human, less of a person. The point here is that a baby in the womb is not less of a human. It's not less of a person. I need to give two applications to our church family just in regard to loving our preborn neighbors. One is regarding birth control pills. Some of you married couples are in birth control, and you need to be aware about birth control pills. Um, so here's a brief explanation of some um, of, of birth control pills. The pill, birth control pills prevent pregnancy in three ways. The pill suppresses ovulation, egg production. If you can't have an egg, you can't get pregnant. The pill also makes it, le- makes it difficult for the sperm to move through the cervix, So even if you have an egg, the sperm can't get through the cervix to fertilize the egg, and therefore, you can't have conception. Both of those are non-abortive. But the pill also does a third thing, typically. The pill makes the lining of the womb thinner and hostile to the embryo implanting. So you might actually fertilize the egg. You might actually have conception. But because the pill thins the line of the womb, it allows the egg to release, and the fertilized egg to to not survive, to not grow. And that is what what I would say as a pastor to you, is that that's abortive, that part. Now, you don't know why you're not getting pregnant. It might be the first two, praise God, but it might be the third one. So you really need to do your homework with, with pills and thinking through that. And let me say something about in vitro fertilization here, and then let me, I want to go to some of the logic here from Peter Kreeft. So I'm saying that uh, life begins at conception, even if you're not sure. So do you guys know what in vitro fertilization is? Right, fertilize eggs outside of the womb and then just um, plant, plant them in. But usually they make many fertilized eggs, and a lot of those eggs are frozen. Fertilized eggs are frozen outside of the womb. Are those humans worthy of protection in life? Because if they are, they ought not to be frozen even though they're not implanted. So if some of you might be, I'm not sure if that's right or wrong. What we're saying is you should not be okay with frozen fertilized eggs just sitting there in the freezer. Now, you're saying, PJ, are you saying on the authority of God's word that you know that they're human for sure? I'm not saying that. But let me walk you through what Peter Kreeft has said. He's a professor of philosophy at Boston College, and he points out there are four possibilities in regard to abortion, in regard to um, these, these fertilized eggs and the fetus. Number one, the fetus is a person, and you know that. Number two, the fetus is a person, but you don't know that. Number three, the fetus is not a person, and you don't know it. Number four, the fetus is not a person, and you do know that the fetus is not a person. Okay? So either the fetus is a person or not, and either you know it or you don't know it to be true. Then he says, now consider each of these ramifications in actual practice. If the fetus is a person and you know it's a person, then abortion is an act of homicide. You intentionally killed an innocent human person, now, if a fetus is a person and you don't know it, then abortion is an is an act of manslaughter. You unintentionally killed an innocent human person, right? It was unintentional, but you still did it. Now, number three, if a fetus is not a person... No, let me get to number four first. I'll get to number three last. So number four, number four. If a fetus is not a person and you know it's not a person, then abortion is an act that needs no justification. You did nothing more than... You did nothing more significant than getting a haircut, or removing your tonsils. Now, number three is, if the fetus is not a person, but you don't know that, and this also applies to uh, a non-implanted fertilized egg, if you don't know that it's not a person, and it's not a person, then abortion is an act of criminal negligence. You didn't kill an innocent human person, but you intentionally risked doing so. That's criminal negligence. If you don't know that it's not a person, and you're not, and let's say it's not, but even though you didn't know, you weren't sure, that's still criminal negligence. This is called the uncertainty principle. Have you heard of the uncertainty principle? Abort73.com, it says this. Uncertainty as to whether a building is occupied does not give an exterminator the right to fumigate. Is there anyone in the building? I don't know. Let's just fumigate anyways. You don't have that right. Uncertainty as to whether an overturned bassinet is empty does not give a truck driver the right to plow through it. Uncertainty as to whether a walk in freezer has been vacated. I talked to one of our members whose husband works in a freezer. Uncertainty as to whether a walk in freezer has been vacated does not give a night manager the right to lock it and bolt it. Uncertainty as to whether a high climber has moved on to another tree does not give a lumberjack the right to, f- to fell the timber. And uncertainty over whether a person is really dead does not give a mortician the right to light the furnace. Personal conviction makes no difference. The absence of human life must be completely verified before any of these actions can take place. That's the uncertainty principle. If you don't know, then don't do it. I'm not sure if it's a human. Then don't do it. Don't do it. That's the uncertainty principle. The absence of human life must be completely verified before any of these actions can take place. So, do I know without a shadow of a doubt that it's at conception and not implantation? I don't know. But I don't know. And if you don't know, then don't do it. You have to know that it's not. One pastor said, uh, um, I'm going to pass over that. We're running out of time. I have to say this objection just briefly. One pastor said that we keep talking about caring for pre-born babies, but after they're born, we don't care about them. They're in these neglected and distressed communities. There's no nutrition. There's no health care. There's no good schools. And all we want to talk about is pro-life, pro-life, pro-life. But then when they're out of the womb, we don't care. So forget your pro-life ethic if you don't care. And I want to say, he's absolutely right that we should care. Pro-life means pro-all of life, from conception to natural death. We should care about all of life, which is why this is not the only justice issue we should be talking about. Loving your neighbor as yourself is not only loving them pre-birth. If you love your pre-born neighbors, eventually they're born, and you still need to love them as yourself, right? So yes, he is right to point out that there are systems in our culture and in our communities that are neglectful of life. And oftentimes it's from the pro-life people who are negligent and ignorant of systemic issues that are pressing down on life. Yes, yes, yes to that objection in terms of, yes, we need to care about all of life, but caring about life after the womb or the fact that people neglect to care for life after after birth is not justification to not care about life. Before birth, one pastor, the pastor I'm referring to in the New York Times piece, he actually used that argument. Because you don't care after, he didn't say don't care before, but he just used that and left it there. Okay, yes, care after, but that is not an excuse that people are failing to do that, to not care before. You need to care all the time because we're all made in God's image. And Psalm 103 says, the Lord is God, he made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Because you're God's creation, you're made in his image. We need to care for all humans. All right, that's the main one. Love your pre-born neighbor. Next, love the pregnant mother. Love the pregnant mother. What about if the the mother's life is in danger? Should we allow abortion? The answer is, that is not abortion. That's not the debate. Abortion is the right to choose to terminate life. The right to choose. When you're talking about saving lives and the mother's life is at risk and the child's life is at risk, that is not about the right to choose. That's about saving some life. It's an unideal situation. One person is going to die. You're trying to save as much life as possible. That's not the right to choose to abort anyone on either side. That's not an abortion. I, mean, I understand that comes up in the abortion debate. That's not an abortion question, though. Terminating the life of that child is not abortion. As we're defining abortion, it is terminated life. If you're saying terminated life of the child, yes. But if, if it's in the cause of life, that's not the abortion debate about public policy. Okay? That's not what we're talking about with the right to choose. That's just, that's, that's, that's uh, yeah. It's category confusion. Next, what about the mother, mother's illegally conducting abortions now because it's illegal? Can that happen? Will that happen? It might. And if it does, is that a tragedy? Yes. And should we work against that? Yes. But that does not mean you uphold an unrighteous law. That that promotes and changes morals. What about rape? Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen. You can turn to Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen. What about rape? Now, rape is a painful situation. Obviously, pregnancy after rape is a painful, difficult situation. That I. That I I don't I have no way of, I can only empathize, there's no way I could sympathize with it. I joke around when I want to get my wife mad and say I know what it's like to be pregnant and have kids, you know, when we talk about our kids. I just do that to get her mad, though. Of course, obviously, I have no idea (laughs) the pain and um, the, the strength that it takes to bear children. I have no idea. And then if you add on top of that, pregnancy due to being victimized, I have no idea what kind of burden that is. It is a painful situation, and we must grieve that situation. We must be righteously angry at that situation and the perpetrator, and we must pursue justice to be served in punishing the rapist, right? We must be committed to that. But, I, but we must not also be for punishing the child. It doesn't make sense to punish the child for the rapist's sins. Look, look, look at Deuteronomy 24:16. Fathers are not to be put to death for their children, and children are not to be put to death for what? For their fathers. Each person will be put to death for his own sin. Rape is a horrific sin. But has the child sinned, yes or no? No. The child has not sinned. And the child should not be put to death for the sin of his rapist or her rapist father. What about those who are embarrassed that they were sexually immoral and they got pregnant and they don't want their church family to find out about the sin and the resulting pregnancy i've seen situations where church have churches have not handled this well let me say what bbc should be doing we must be we must be firm and clear on sexual morality and sexual obedience in terms of the, the marriage bed and the gift of sexuality and the distortion of it and sin we must also be gracious and apply the gospel to them just like we apply the gospel to ourselves. We must seek to restore them from their sin with the gospel of forgiveness and come alongside them in the process of pregnancy and the choices that should be made on whether to keep the child or give up the child for adoption. We must not shame people needlessly. We need to just take sin seriously and walk with them and celebrate the gift of life. That's what love does. So yes, we need to love distressed mothers who are pregnant. Next, we need to love the guilty mother and father. So I know some of our members have, or in the past, if not some of our members, future members will, have had abortions. And, it, and they've had, some of them have or will have had them pre-conversion, and now they're members of our church. Some of them would have had them after converting to Christ. What, should I, what, what do I have for you if you have had an abortion or you are a father who has supported and encouraged and are responsible for the sin of abortion? First of all, I want to say, face the truth. We must face re- reality as painful as it is. We need to call it what it is. Secondly, though, let's embrace the gospel of forgiveness. Embrace the gospel of forgiveness. Acts 2.37, it says, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and convicted and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized or be immersed, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So immerse yourself in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. Go to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins and cleansing by the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, that's the good news. God will forgive you of all your sins, not just the sin of abortion, all sins. If you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, Jesus died for your sins and rose for your sins, for your justification. He is the savior of the world because we're sinners who deserve hell. So repent and trust in Jesus. And if you've had an abortion, it's the same news for you. Repent and trust in Jesus. If you're like me and you have been negligent, in your love for your pre-born neighbors, repent and trust in Jesus. But also, if you've had an abortion, I need to say this too as well. You need to process this. You need to get counseling. You need to process and reflect and find gospel healing and gospel hope. Listen to Psalm fifty-one. You can turn there if you like. This is not in my notes. Psalm fifty-one, verse maybe eleven or something. Psalm fifty-one, eleven. Now, Psalm 51, 10, 12, and 13. Psalm fifty-one, ten says, created me a clean heart and renew steadfast spirit within me. So cleanse me from my sin. David committed adultery. Cleanse me from my sins. Here's how you know when you've, you've got healing from your sin. Okay? Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 12, restore the joy of salvation to me and sustain me with the willing spirit. So if you've been cleansed, do you have joy in the Lord? But then the next one, 13, is very important. Then, and only then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. So when you've fallen into the sin like the sin of abortion, when you've given into the sin of abortion, you need cleansing, you need the restoration of joy, you need healing such that you're at the point where you can now teach others from your mistakes, your sins. And I just want to say I, I know many, many Christians who don't get to this point. But I'm telling you, if you've had an abortion, I'm telling you, you will be a blessing in discipling other members of this church by sharing from your story, even if not publicly, even in private conversations. But I don't know many who've gotten to that point of healing that they can share their stories. But that's where I would encourage you to go to serve others and to serve the cause of the unborn, the life of the unborn. So that's love the guilty mother and father next love the fellow church members so disciple each other work together for the cause of life support each other in loving and following jesus gather together on sundays bless each other encourage each other to grow in our cause of justice okay so all i'm saying to ch- fellow church members is look at each other and help each other grow in fighting for justice for the unborn and love for pregnant mothers in distress next one love our american neighbors in society here's the last closing applications Love our society. What does that mean? Learn. Become thoroughly informed. Know the best arguments against pro-life causes and think about how to answer them. Just like I was saying last week, you are not excused from unintentional sin if you deny ethnocentric oppression. You're guilty of perpetuating it. That's last week's. That's last week's general theme, right? If systemic racism exists, and I would argue that it does, that's a different conversation, but you don't see that, you are unintentionally yet actually still sinning in your unawareness of it, because your unawareness perpetuates it. I want to say the same thing in abortion. If you're unaware that the legality of abortion is sinful and perpetuates abortion, then you are unintentionally, sinfully perpetuating it. So learn the arguments. Learn about this issue. Next, speak. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 is a good theme verse. Maybe this could be a good takeaway for your life in the last two weeks. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says this. Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. Share articles, share sermons, post on social media, print out articles and share it with your neighbors. Say, hey, let's talk about this. Find ways of communicating and speaking up for justice. Support pregnancy centers. Mothers in need support organizations that help the unborn live and thrive and care, f- and care for mothers. Serve as well. Volunteer at a pregnancy center. Maybe do sidewalk counseling. Talk to some of our members who've done it before. Serve children in need. Tonight I'm going to share uh, about a foster need for foster teens who um, we could serve here in the city of Bellflower. I'll share that tonight during our evening gathering, so come back for that. But find ways to practically serve those in need, not just for preborn life, but all of life. And let me just say this. Because you're saying, PJ, I've come to this gathering today really discouraged about things in my own soul. I really needed to hear a different word from the Lord today than a word about abortion. Let me say this to you on this issue of serving others. Sometimes the best thing you could do when you're struggling is serve other people and not think about your own problem. That's not the only thing. But let me just say. Serving others grows you in holiness and sanctification and communion with God that helps you with your other spiritual problems. If you just focus only on yourself, you will shrink in your Christian life. So, so, so take this message, which has nothing to do maybe with what you are burdened by when you came in this morning, and just say, Lord, thank you for this message. Help me to serve others in some way in this way. And help me to trust that you'll use this to help me in my other problems. doesn't solve the other problems, but it helps in your walk with the Lord. And lastly, pray. Ask God to bless the efforts and change the minds of our culture and our churches and our neighbors and our leaders. So brothers and sisters, let's serve. I'll read, let me read to you again that opening verse from Isaiah 117 and I'll close here with a story. We don't want to make abortion merely illegal. We want to make abortion unthinkable for pregnant mothers in distress. We want to make it where it's just not an option, not because they feel cut off, but because they don't even want to do that it would be un- just how it's unthinkable to kill a 1 month old how that's unthinkable in our culture we want it to be unthinkable to the pregnant mom to terminate the life in the womb isaiah 117 and then let me tell you a story I'll close with a story isaiah 117 again learn to do what is good pursue justice correct the oppressor defend the rights of the fatherless plead the widows cause here's a story from the erlc And the name is changed here for for protecting the guilty. When Miss D was six years old, she was removed from her mom and parental rights were terminated. From that time on until she aged out of the foster care system at 18, she had 13 foster families. While in the foster care system, a family adopted her and the father physically abused her. She was removed from that home, thankfully, and the parental rights of that adoptive family were terminated. When D aged out of the foster care system, she had no family, no support, and nowhere to go. She began using drugs and alcohol to numb the pain from her trauma. This led to her being trafficked and she eventually became pregnant. Against all odds, she carried her baby to term. DHS removed the baby from her care and terminated per- her parental rights because she was unable to care for her baby. Continuing down this dark path, she had a second unplanned pregnancy, this time, Dee was committed to having an abortion. She had no family, no protection, and could barely care for herself. Through a mutual friend, Dee met an advocate from a pro life organization who began to walk alongside her in love, compassion, and empathy. The advocate told Dee she would foster her daughter connect her to a church, and help her with resources to provide ongoing support through a continuum of care. Abortion became unthinkable in D's eyes. Today, baby E is alive and ready for a forever family. Just because of love. So speak up, care, have compassion, pray. Pray. And let God use our small works for his greater glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would take these thoughts and these words and help us to care for the unborn. Help us learn how to think and reason and converse and persuade others on this injustice. Especially in this state of California. Help us to love our preborn neighbors. Help us to love mothers in distress. Help us to support centers and organizations that are caring for the unborn. Help us to serve and pray. Help us to love you with all of our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all of our strength in the cause of the Great Commission. In Jesus' name, amen.